Hey, Justice, Eric, Peter, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm excited for this conversation because I feel like this one's been a long time coming and uh, it, feel, it feels like there's a lot of energy about it on Twitter, good and bad. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to fully explore this one. So Yeah, yeah thanks for having us yeah. on. Yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, so do you, Eric, do you want to kick us off? Give us a, a little bit of a, like, how, how are you feeling about the whole thing? What's, uh, what do people need to know for those just kind of tuning in and, and trying to get a, a little bit of a crash course on what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, by the way, my name is Eric Lombardi. I'm with More Neighbors Toronto. We're an advocacy group in the city of Toronto that's really seeking policy reforms to address the housing crisis and end it. Um, and one of the big policies that we've been pushing for a very long time since we started as one of our main issues is to end the exclusionary zoning in our city, whereby 70% of residential land is zoned for uh, primarily single detached and then sometimes semi-detached housing. And over the last couple of months, um, well, I, I guess a couple of years, the city has been working on this program called EHON, which is expanding housing options in neighborhoods. And generally speaking, the program has taken so long because council did not really want to address what the implications are, which is legalizing fourplexes across the city. And so after a very long, 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 long wait and lots of delays, they actually finally did it. So uh, on, yeah, yesterday, May 10th, it finally went past council, a multiplex law that legalizes four units by right on all single and semi-detached properties in the city up to 10 meters in height uh, with no FSI. So moving to entirely form-based zoning uh, for uh, multiplexes. And I'm feeling fairly good about this. Um, one of the big wins that we tried to push for was really to eliminate FSI um, because if left in place, the areas of the city, Toronto and Etobicoke, um, you know, there's a lot of neighborhoods that have used FSI as a tool to bludgeon and prevent um, growth and change. And those limits were actually left on for single family homes. And so in, in those parts of the city, um, it, it now is far more economical to rebuild something that's a multiplex rather than doing a single family home. And in other areas of the city, the minimum height was raised to 10 specifically for 10 meters for specifically for multiplex. This is all good. What some people will likely say and fairly say is, well, I mean, this is only, it's not a panacea. It's not going to result in a ton of new housing. Um, and to that, I'd say, you know, mostly correct. But this has really been a big fight in going from zero to one on densification, broadly speaking. And so, now the push can be for, well, if we don't see multiplexes, what can we do or change incrementally to get there? So it ha it's a very important legislative achievement, even if, you know, what we're going to see, if it doesn't result in a ton of new housing. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I think like, and I, I'd like to talk a little bit about sort of like what I expect the investor response will be and like executability and cost and things like that. Cause those are other things that a lot, I think a lot of people have brought up as kind of factors that I think everybody's like assuming that this means that if you're an owner, you have to demolish an existing building and build a out of character fourplex or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I think that like we're dismissing that, you know, there's a lot of absurdly large houses in neighborhood areas in, in Toronto that could very easily house one more or two more or three more units. I mean, Peter and I joke about this all the time, but like I, I'm very excited to absorb a lot of the housing stock from, from boomers who have three too many bedrooms and, and are sort of, you know, I, I joke and I don't say this like, you know, offensively, but, but, you know, like who are kind of like a hip replacement away from a, a wanting to downsize out of a flight of stairs, wanting a bungalow, wanting to have that walkability in a more urban area. Um, you know, I mean, these are things that kind of happen at the passing of time and, and, I, and I'm just curious, like, um, if that's kind of where this ends up happening, like, you know, no disrespect to boomers, but a lot of them just have a lot of house and, um, and a lot of empty yeah. bedrooms. Yeah. I think it is like statistically three, two minute, two or three too many bedrooms. Like I on, think it's, I think it's something like I, on average, I think it's something like two and a half is the number, but I, it's been a while since I, I remember recalling that stat, um, but yeah, if my parents' house was in the city of Toronto, I would fourplex it right away right now. Yeah, I recall hearing for the GTA, the number of excess bedrooms is somewhere around 5 million. And because, you know, especially younger people in a lot of households do not have extra bedrooms, the ones that have extra bedrooms tend to have many. Yeah, that's accurate. Like, again, I, I can tell you my... Uh... My own father personally was, you know, his, his line is, it'll take six of you to get me out of here. And he's sitting on three empty bedrooms. So that's sort of some of the line of some of these boomers. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely upbeat about it. Uh, you know, we've ha I've had a couple investors who, you know, builders who've been, we've, we've been looking at this, you know, because it's been coming down the line. Like you said, it's been a long, long time, Eric. And... But I think the real value, again, is going to be something that's, you know, some kind of dilapidated house where it's simply just land value and, and you know, where you can con convert it into something that's a fourplex. Because the big issue we have is, like, when I look at numbers in the 416, I think seven, almost 80% on the MLS every year is either a detached or a condo. Like, and then literally every, left everything else in between from your town row semi uh, is just roughly 20% of the stock that sells every year. Yeah, it's interesting from my perspective. I don't know if Peter, like from a product perspective, if you have anything on the market that, you know, like would have qualified or kind of fit like, but I found like just literally today that the amount of interest in multiplex stuff that I had, like I, I had to, uh, I had a duplex and a triplex. It's funny cause the vendor, um, he's probably listening right now, but, to, but the vendor, um, decided not to like he, he, as of today, he was like, yeah, I'm just going to take them off the market now. Cause they're worth way more. Right. Like why, why sell? Yeah. I, that? I own, but yeah. like I have yeah. family myself and I own myself something that would qualify for a fourplex right now from a, from a duplex technically. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I had a question, but I'm going to let Justice go. 
Oh, yeah. So I just wanted to say, like, um, I know that some people are saying that, you know, it's not that big of a deal in terms of what's happening, because it's not like we're going to see change overnight. It's not like everyone's going to multiplex their homes. But I think that when you look at what's happening in other cities, it is a slow change. And it is that incremental kind of gentle density um, that slowly kind of gets built up. And I do think that we do need like more around major transit and more apartment buildings and that ability to have smaller apartments um, in these neighborhoods. But I I think that it's a huge step in the right direction and it's a step that's really um, allowed young people to feel like their voices have been heard because there's a lot of younger people who have been you know learning about the housing crisis learning about zoning learning about exclusionary zoning and that's been very important for them and i have to say more neighbors like they're a volunteer organization these guys like go to meetings they've done a ton of advocacy work um, they've done a lot for this decision to even be made possible um so i commend them on their actions and it's not easy for them either because anytime you um want to advocate for this you're accused of being like you know a shell for developers like I even had that on my Twitter account um, so it's not easy to actually advocate for it and all these people want is really more options we've seen an exodus from Toronto um, Mike Moffat has done a ton of research on this showing that it's young families and children that are moving and they don't have options because you're either going to live in a condo or you're going to live in a detached house and it's it, those are your two options really because this missing middle is missing and with that comes missing children like you don't see as many kids as you should like there's schools um, that have like vacancies that are high because there's no kids to go to school in those neighborhoods so it, it is something that's needed um, you know that the, the city planners have never conveyed that this is the answer to housing affordability or this is going to be cheap for people um, and I think that that's a comment that constantly comes up right like oh it's not going to be affordable who's going to be living there but right now it's not affordable with detached homes either so I think that in a way there is this kind of power that's being taken from this loud minority that's consistently said you know we don't want that form of housing in our neighborhood and it's always come from an exclusionary standpoint it's either been like single women living in apartments in those neighborhoods that they didn't want or they didn't want like lower income people in their neighborhood so I think that overall it's a it's a really good step um, in the right direction um, I guess like one of the questions uh, that I have for anybody who wants to answer it because th these are the critiques that I constantly am hearing coming up so one of them is affordability and they're saying like you know Vancouver has had this for years it hasn't made anything affordable and the other one that I hear from every like from different groups of people I don't even expect it to be coming from certain people on Twitter but it's the fact that it's going to raise uh, the value of, of existing land and it's just going to make everything more expensive so I'm just curious about that and also in terms of like um, I, I don't know who can answer this one but the um, appeals on it like now that it's approved are people going to start appealing it and is it going to be difficult to actually build them I, I think it, I don't know if I'm correct here but I think that it's um, I don't know if it will be allowed to be appealed right like similar to like I think how the how Bill 23 would make it so that you can't take like the um, ADUs to the LPAT or whatever it is but um, I think it was it Peter and then Eric I, I think is the order going to go ahead Peter yeah, actually, one of the questions I had is probably for Eric who can help answer it. Um, I was actually I sat in on one of the, they had those like public inquiry meetings online, one of those Zoom calls, uh, basically getting the uh, public's opinion on it. So, but I think the EHON, like this was the, like the next step in this is on main arterial roads, like, like, 
basically along, let's say, the Victoria Park or something, where they're going to change the zoning to actually up to six units. I don't know if Eric can... Uh... Yeah, I think there was... A... I, can, no, yes, I, can, go ahead, I can address some of the questions that came up. So, and you'll, I, I think this is one of the reasons for optimism, is this multiplex bill was a long time coming. And historically, what we've seen with anything that was you know, pushing the limits on change at City Hall, we would find ways to really water it down significantly, particularly right before it passed. And we didn't see that happen. And this is the first of 27 different actions that are going to be a part of the housing action plan, which was started under Mayor Tory. And so the fact that we did get a very clean uh, piece of legislation that came through for this actually bodes well for some of the other things that are coming up. And those things include, um, you know, small apartments on like main streets. We also are going to see major streets and avenues. So there's going to be um, a lot more around mid rise and even high rise, particularly I think around uh, line two that isn't necessarily being addressed right now. And then we are still waiting on the pro provincial um, PMTSAs, which is the major transit station areas. And we're expecting to see a lot there. And then we also have some of these big opportunities um, in uh, the Portlands and in Downsview to really accelerate and build a lot of housing. And so to address one of the questions that came up um, around land values and is this just going to raise a lot of prices, I think you have to take some of these reforms and their impacts as what's going to happen in the short term versus what's going to happen in the long term. If you view this as a part of an initiative in Toronto and then hopefully the GTA via the province, um, what you're doing is unlocking a lot more land to be available for development. And one of the reasons why we see such intense um, growth in land values is because we've actually limited in a lot of ways where you can develop in the first place. So when you take all of these actions towards upzoning in general, you're actually going to start to see less competition among builders for buildable space. And that might actually lower land values over the long term, even though uh, in the short term, we might see some higher land values as a result of this reform in isolation. So when we think about all these market-oriented reforms that are really just about making it easier and more feasible to build housing, the question is not about will it be affordable tomorrow? No, it won't. That's not going to happen. And a lot of the brand new units that are going to come through this way are not going to be capital A affordable. But what they will do is take heat off the out of the market among people who can afford housing. And it'll bring them into new spaces. And in a lot of cases, freeing up older, more affordable spaces for other people. And so we're kind of ending this really screwed up game of musical cha chairs that the government has provided or created through bad policy over the long term. It doesn't make up for the real need, especially for the federal government in the province, to be investing in deeply affordable uh, housing, to be investing in mental health with transition and addictions, uh, transitional housing, and for us to be leveraging public land in places where we are doing this upzoning to try to secure more affordable units as well. Like none of that is changed by the fact that we've done this. But what we have said is 
okay, we're going to start taking actions to make it possible to build more housing over the long term. And what we're going to do with that is lead to having more old housing, which is often more affordable in 15 to 20 years time. So, you know, this housing crisis is not created overnight. We're not going to end it overnight. We're putting ourselves on the pathway to not having this problem be as severe. A lot further to go, however. Thanks, Eric. Sorry, I was just uh, just in the speakers trying to invite a couple of people and couldn't get to my uh, unmute button. But yeah, what I'd be really interested in, in hearing from, um, especially on the answer of like how feasible is it to do this right now? Um, I see Eurodale development um, is on. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know they've built some uh, multiplexes already in Toronto. So I would love to hear from them just to talk about you know, the math as a result of this. Yeah, for sure. Eurodale, are you uh, are you available to chime in on sort of like what the economics look like on because I, I know a lot of people have sort of been criticizing like if you were to tear down and rebuild the per, per square foot buildable cost is just going to make it prohibitive, really. Uh, yeah, sorry. I realize that you uh, trying to invite me and I'm the part of the problem here. Can you hear me? OK, all good. You you, uh, you, you fell off right when I uh, was talking about boomers, so I just I didn't, wanted to make sure I didn't offend anybody. I'm, I'm operating my phone like a boomer right now here, so sorry about that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, um, I mean, one, the announcement's hugely exciting. Um, it, it provides uh, another option and just a lever for uh, young people looking to enter the market or any people looking to enter the market for that matter that that are looking for a, an alternative to a high rise solution um, to be able to to afford, which even that's kind of running away. Uh, it allows for some creativity. Uh, you're going to start to see, um, and it allows for gentrification of, of old Toronto homes. And we have a massive stock of them that are in need of updates just from a, an efficiency standpoint. Um, and, and so this is a fantastic opportunity. But as it's been said, this is not affordable housing. There is a trickle-down effect when you bring more housing on stream. Um, it is expensive to tear down and build new. Uh, it's more expensive to do that traditionally on a per-square-foot basis than it is to add or renovate to an existing house, uh, all things being equal. And so one of the projects that, that kind of hit the Toronto Star um, in the last few articles about this uh, housing typology was one we did at, at Young and Lawrence. And, you know, we did that as a renovation, a, a large scale addition renovation project strictly from an economic standpoint. Um, and what you have is something that just barely pencils. And so uh, one of the best parts of the, the work that Greg Lintern and, and his team have done through this, uh, through this multiplex bylaw is that they have held back DCs. And when you look at how much DCs account uh, on a, on a, uh, a development, it, it immediately renders these um, completely uh, ineffective from a budgetary standpoint. So uh, yes, it's expensive, but when you can put additional densities there and increase the quality of the housing from, a, from an efficiency standpoint, from a health comfort of the occupant standpoint, and make the building viable long-term, like for the next 100 years type scenario, uh, it definitely pays out, but you're going to be looking at 
like a 4% yield, like a 25 year, 30 year payback on this. So, you know, the people that are going to be investing in this space are going to be looking longer term. Is it going to spike property values? Um, as it was suggested a little bit earlier, uh, possibly in the near term, but as more of these start to roll out um, and it frees up uh, older housing that's in need of repair, it will, it will help. The more stock there is, um, the better it will be. Yeah, one of my questions was around DCs. I was actually just messaging messaging Justice about it because I didn't get a chance to review whether or not. So, so they'll be are they completely withheld or waived or are they delayed or how does that work? Do no. You, do so uh, the city has has confirmed, and I I confirmed it with them today um, that development charges shall not be imposed with respect to the second, third, or fourth residential dwelling unit constructed on a single residential parcel parcel of land or within uh, a single residential building, uh, whether it's ancillary to it or part of the primary dwelling. Now, the neat thing about this is, and everyone's saying, okay, four four, um, housing units or or suites per lot, um, you can actually do up to five now, as soon as this came into into effect. So, you know, the title of this space is fourplex everything. It, It really should be fourplex plus one because you can add a garden suite or a laneway suite in addition to those four units. Now, there's a a key piece here in that they have a DC deferral agreement that you can put in place on the laneway suite side that so long as you promise not to sever the lot for I believe the period's 20 years, it might be 25, I think it's 20, uh, there are no DCs applicable there either. So you can actually go up to potentially five units on a lot uh, anywhere within the city of Toronto now. It's interesting to me because like, you know, having a podcast, like a platform to speak to investors, especially one of the ways that I've kind of like communicated this is that it's almost, especially with the DCs thing. When I was talking more about, you know, before yesterday, I was talking more about bill 23. Um, If DCs get taken away at, as a result of Bill 23, or if they were to, you know, for everything below 10 units or whatever was being proposed. Yeah. But now, you know, now we have a real practical application of this. To me, you know, if you are a small cap investor, you're selling the same thing, right? You're selling a unit of housing to the market, let's say to rent, right? So you get to Mm -hmm. sell the same product as a high-rise developer, purpose-built rental developer would sell into the market. Um, And you're going to rent, let's say you each develop a 1,500 square foot unit, or sorry, a 1,000 square foot unit, and you're renting them at uh, whatever, two grand. Each person is the identical product, and, you know, maybe they're in the same same neighborhood. But the developer is doing it at scale, has to do it, has to pay whatever, 30,000 to 50,000 in development charges. And the individual, small cap individual landlord now has to pay zero in DCs. That's a, from my perspective, a literal arbitrage, right? Like you, you're buying the unit from the market at, at, a, at $50,000 less than your competitor who now has a, a $50,000 disadvantage and, and you, but you get to sell it to the market in, in the form of, you know, residual income from rent at the same price. Like it, it, it's good. I, I just kind of like it because it, it gives a little bit more power to the people who I've always felt have an ability to make meaningful change in the, in the market, which is smaller investors. But the challenge is like compared to um, compared to a large condo developer or a a large low track develop uh, developer builder, um, what I pay 
on a, you know, if we build 10 or 15 places a year, uh, what, what I'm paying to, to buy a two by four or to pour concrete is significantly higher than what that large builder developer is paying. So where you look at it and say, okay, you've got this great advantage with DCs that the, the price per like trying to get um, a concrete truck to drive from Stouffville to the beaches to pour a, an addition, you know, you're spending a heck of a lot more um, on a per square foot basis than, than they are to do a thousand homes in say Whitby. And so, you know, there, there is, um, yes, there's an advantage there, but without that deferral, these just would not happen. And, uh, and that's one of the, the, the biggest things that, um, that Lintern and his team recognized and, and have, have put forward is they need to make it viable in order to, for people, for people to actually invest the money to do it. Um, the, the, the really interesting piece is with that DC element, this won't be waived in perpetuity. Like there is a window of time here uh, in Toronto and, and the province of Ontario where we have to make up for lost time. And uh, we, we have been restricting housing for so long. So now we need to incentivize it. Um, this is one incentive, but it's not going to be here forever. So when you look at it and you say, okay, this is a long-term play, this is a 20 to 30 year play um, to, to get your payback. Uh, the, you know, these, these DCs are likely to start rolling in when we catch up on housing. When's that going to happen? Well, nobody's crystal ball is there, but um, maybe never, the winds right? of change are, are at our back, right? And so the time to do this is now. You know, it's a, you probably say it in real estate all the time. You, you hear it. They're like, oh, when was the best time to buy a place? Uh, you know, yesterday. When's the next time, best time? Today. It's the same with construction. Like construction costs continue to escalate year over year, month over month, sometimes week over week in this city. Um, you know, if I could build uh, that project, that, that triplex I referenced, if I could build it for the same cost today, oof, I'd build 10 of them because it would cost me probably 20% more than it cost to do that project. And that was a year ago. It is interesting, and, like, I, I kind of think about it almost like, like I, I guess the challenge is, like, I, I don't know if I would call, like, like I guess the beaches versus a Whitby comparison is cha challenging for me. Like, it would be almost like, is there a, a closer comparison? Like, if somebody was developing a condo building in, in that area, you know, and it's going to, they're going to pay what in the, I mean, Ben, ben uh, Myers is here. Maybe you can give me a, what currently concrete's um, being underwritten at. But, like, a concrete developer is going to be in what, like, the 500s of buildable square foot? Uh, or more uh, right now. Um, so like, I'm just thinking like a, a high density cause, cause like if you're in the same neighborhood versus, you know, and, and you're selling the same products, you know, a one bedroom unit in the same neighborhood, I think that the, the, this kind of does give an advantage to smaller cap people, even though they don't get the economies of scale. I don't know. It's just, just a thought experiment. Um, um, Eric, you want to jump in here? Sorry. Yeah, um, I did. I, I guess I had a comment and then like a question. Um, you know, when it comes to the DC waivers, it's really good that they've exempted four units. Um, but one of the issues with it is that it immediately expires. So if you want to build six units because you did have that chance, well, now you have to actually pay the, the DCs for all the units. So we've kind of, as a result, created this chasm in, where, in what it makes sense to do. And so I think one of the changes that you know, we want to advocate from the city is exempt the four first units in general from DCs. So if someone wants to build six because they have a chance to, they're not necessarily penalized for adding that like net 
plus one unit. You know, the other thing that was interesting on the plus five on the five or four plus one is also whether some of these properties might qualify for CMHC loans, which start at uh, five units. One of the counselors for Scarborough Northwest, um, uh, Jamal Myers, actually said and had amended into this legislation that he wants to legalize six units by right in his ward so that builders would have access to CMHC funding. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of interested if anyone's looking to the math there and what it might mean. But my my last question, um, particularly for Yordale, is, um, you know, uh, one of the ideas that I really like um, is about pre-patterned multiplex housing. So, you know, if you're building bespoke projects um, you know, on one-offs, you're not going to get a lot of economies of scale in general. But when we last built a ton of housing in this country, we did it using fairly standardized, you know, plans, particularly led by the CMHC. And so I'm wondering how helpful would it be to allow these pre-patterned designs so that a supply chain can kind of form around, you know, creating all the parts. And then, you know, when you're on a property, it's really the demolition, then assembling like Lego with a set of instructions. Um, I love this idea, but the truth is I don't actually know what the math would look like. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's anyone on this call that you know is kind of open to talking about, well, how much could something like that help or not? Can I? Yeah, Eric, um, and, and you had kind of put it initially to me, so not to, to speak for everyone, but... Um, there's been great success with that in California with respect to their um, laneway garden suite um, coach house type developments. Um, th the wildest part is you can get a permit in a day for one of those pre-designed uh, packages, which is flies pretty strongly in the face of what the timeframes we see here in the city of Toronto for approvals. Um, so that's an immediate win. Um, that's an immediate cost savings for sure. If you can take an off the shelf design, uh, it works a little bit easier for new construction. Um, so anytime you have uh, a systemization like that, yes, it's going to create an efficiency. Your trades are going to be more comfortable with what they're doing. You know, they have to pick up the plans less, uh, in figuring things out. I mean, we've all built a, a desk from Ikea and university. And if we did it a second time, it would definitely be easier. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work as perfectly for additions and renovations. Uh, a, a group we we did some, some highly custom stuff with, um, Levitt Goodman Architects, LGA I, is what they go by now. Um, they are doing some work in trying to create uh, systemized designs for a lot of the post-war um, uh, single family dwellings in con creating conversions for them. Um, there are a number of uh, pretty standard um, developments around the city that uh, are common from those 1950s uh, post-war era that, that they have what done. Was the name, what was the name of the company? I, LGA. No, I, I would love to speak with them. Yeah, LGA, Levitt Goodman Architects was their original name. Now they go by LGA Partners, I believe. Um, if you send me a message, I can... Uh, if you send me a DM, I can I can link you up uh, with some of the stuff that they have just recently been talking about, and uh, so it would help. It would help, but the additional. So when we look at these projects from a from a cost perspective, we think they pencil better as an addition renovation project than a than a complete teardown. 
Um, but if you get to systemizing and the and introducing and introducing like flat pack technology for um, for panelization, yes, that will have an efficiency for sure, and which which impacts costs. Sorry about awesome, that, um, Eric. I, I I'd like to chime in there. So I'm I'm a first time landlord, and we bought a single family home and converted into a fourplex, um, and there's room for a garden suite. And I've actually been looking at the opportunity to import something from the US, uh, kind of an out of the box garden suite. And the math on the fourplex barely worked. But the reason why we went after the specific property is because there was an opportunity to do five plus units in the, the basement and open up the CMHC financing. So I think there is a real opportunity for the legislation to go in that direction and allow uh, the pro formas to to work a little bit better um, because once you open up that CMHC financing really you're you're allowing yourself to to get a better loan to value and you know go out and do it again and we're really passionate about offering high quality rental housing and you know trying to make it while it's not affordable, try to make it a bit more attainable and increase the supply and hopefully, you know, affordability and attainability kind of come along with that in the future. Yeah, I think it, I, I think it'd be an interesting discussion around the, whether or not we could get because like because I, I guess the trade off becomes and, and I want to get to Justice's question before we jump in on the CMHC side, but whether or not like is it worth it if you do fourplex and then add maybe a, a fifth like unit later to try and get into that CMHC financing. Do you still get the DCs waived? But uh, we can discuss it in a minute. Um, Justice, you want to jump in here? Yeah. So I just had a question for Euro Odell. So my question is just because I've been kind of paying attention to like what the critiques are of the multiplexing and one that comes up often too is like, what's the point? They're just going to build all these one bedroom units. So I'm just wondering in your experience of building them, like who do you find like moves into them? Like in terms of like, um, like, are they families? Are they like dual income earners? Like who's moving into them? And like, what is the average like bedrooms that are included in these, like that you've kind of um, experienced in your building of them? Uh, so Justice, great question. Um, there is a ton of product that has been coming into the market the last number of years that are bachelor and one bedroom units. Uh, the, the greatest housing affordability crunch that we have, or the, the, the greatest dearth in the market, the, the, the greatest need is that two bedroom, three bedroom, or more family sized units. And so if you speak with the planners at city of Toronto, they would love for us to even, or anyone to design units that have flexibility that can kind of go from two to three bedroom type situations. Um, so when we were doing this project at, at Young and Lawrence, very like we've been building it for single family homeowners in that, in that pocket for decades and very family oriented, great schools, a huge draw. And we just, we knew that our best tenant opportunities like speed to rent was going to be quote unquote, family sized units. So in that building, we have uh, two two bedroom units. And instead of doing four two bedroom units, we did the third unit that goes across two floors. That's actually a four bedroom unit because we looked at the market and there is zero four bedroom homes. Like there's zero single family four bedroom homes 
for rent in that pocket. And sure enough, that four bedroom unit, which was not cheap, it was $5,000 a month, was the first unit we rented and it rented inside of a week. As soon as it hit the market, it was gone. And so yes, there is a massive need for family sized rental in this city. So we, when the stuff we're designing now, we knew this was coming out. Um, we already have a, a number of bungalows that have already been designed for triplexes, fourplexes with garden suites, and they are ready to go into the city and they are all two and three bedroom units because um, there's tons of competition in the bachelor and one bedroom space. So uh, we see a, a, an opportunity to, uh, you know, land better tenants, land better rents and, and much quicker, um, less vacancies. I think it fits nicely in like the suburban landscape as well, right? Like that it, with those types of units where like, I think that the smaller units do fit nicely in more of like the densely urban uh, landscape, like, you know, young professionals who, you know, like, I, I guess like characteristically are spending more time, you know, like not spending time at the park or walking around the neighborhood or in the backyard with their kids. They're spending time maybe at the bar or at work, staying at work and coming, coming home sort of just to sleep in their, in their smaller unit. Right. The people who, like the lifestyle that sort of necessitates a unit of that that size. Um, we have two other speakers on here that I want to I want to try and get to. I just want to get your feedback on um, on what you know, sort of what happened on the policy side and what what still needs to be done. Um, Conrad and, and Chloe, uh, if either of you want to chime in, um, would love to hear from from either of you on, on sort of your perspective. Uh, Chloe, or, or sorry, I can go ahead if you want. I'm just on the train actually right now to Montreal, so I apologize if the the signal cuts out, um, but I was um, I was involved with a project last year called rehousing. We originally called it rehousing the yellow belt, uh, which was to to really take the concept of the four unit Ehon uh, multiplex reform and to sort of draw that out as uh, floor plans for both a low, medium, high, and kind of new build cost scenario uh, across different uh, lot types in the city. And so there's a website that we put together called rehousing.ca. And the first tab under that is a housing catalog where you'll see um, a whole bunch of different kind of site types. One of which, probably my favorite one, is the post-war bungalow, um, where if you look at what zoning, of course, now allows, um, you can see the types of units um, and types of housing that could be accommodated in that. Again, I'll just note, because I know there's a lot of builders on this call, these these plans and drawings were done to help advocate for zoning reform. They're, they're not for construction. Um, but uh, one of the things I think that was somewhat Machiavellian about uh, proposing the four-unit limit is that uh, if you had a six-unit limit, you would end up with six smaller units, where, of course, with four, you end up with four larger ones. And so if the objective is to make family-sized units, uh, the four-unit cap uh, does kind of reverse incentivize that. But when we did the exercise, uh, some of the lots, especially, you know, larger 40... ...apartments uh, and... ...can easily handle six units uh, with, you know, two of them being three. So there's that scope of work. And then the other one is a building code change, which um, if anyone's coming to the Missing Middle Sun on May 25th, uh, you'll hear me speak about that there. Awesome. Thanks, Conrad. Yeah, I look forward to that. And uh, actually, maybe I'll put a link to the Missing Middle on, in the uh, in the nest there, because I know we've uh, we've encouraged a lot of people to go check it out. And I think there's a pretty strong community around it. So I'd, I'd love to hear that. I look forward to hearing you uh, 
do that presentation there. Um, Chloe, do you have any feedback on um, on sort of where we're at uh, from a, a planning perspective, where you'd, uh, you know, the, what, what important issues we're going to be facing in the upcoming election and sort of where you think we still need to go? I'd just love to get your take on what's what's happening right now. So I'm happy to see that multiplexes have gone through, but I'd really love to see major transit station areas be on the agenda next. Um, as a part of my platform, I'm trying to get people to wrap their heads around the fact that Japan and Hong Kong use their transit station areas as a really valuable real estate opportunity. And that could help us really accelerate building because at this point, yeah, multiplexes are great, but it's, as I've heard, not enough. So we really need to take the Japanese rezoning approach where it's just like, yeah, I'd like to see more zoning relax so that we can get more mixed use spaces. I'd like to see better mixes of retail, commercial, industrial, and residential spaces because we have light and advanced manufacturing now. There's this really great opportunity to reimagine how we work and live and travel around this city. And now more than ever, with the way that work is going, it's like, let's figure out a way to relocalize supply chains and bring them closer to home. But it really requires the political will to rezone. So yeah, that's what I'm looking for. And that's my hopes going forward. Because as a person that loves this city, it's like, yeah, more time passes by every affordable story costs more money and young people are running out of money. So we really do need to push forward and just get it done and bring more people into the bring more people into the civic responsibility of being better neighbors because shout out to more neighbors. You got the policy done, but the implementation part will require us being better suited to deal with development and the variety of things that happen with it, because we do really need to make this transition, not just for like young people, but the boomers as well as they age out of their homes. So yeah, that's just my preliminary thoughts. Amazing. Thanks, Chloe. I really appreciate that. Um, I, th I think it is like I would agree with the, the pro from a process perspective. Do you do you sense that we'll probably see like a lot of opposition to, to some like things like this? Like it's still going to be hard then to, to try and push through a lot of these projects, like just given your understanding of the political environment? Well, it will be hard to push through if you don't include people in the the legacy planning, because right now, the issue isn't really just affordable housing, it's affordable real estate. People want nonprofit lands and they want for-profit developers to deliver that. And that is not in, that's just not in the nature of for-profit development. So it's like, yeah, the government needs to work a little harder in reassuring the public that there will be land available for nonprofit opportunities. And this is where, yeah, the government could be working with developers and the community to set up these land trusts that would put some land aside for, you know, the assurity of affordability and still allow developers to make what, what they were born to make. So, yeah, it really just becomes a matter of how active will council and the mayor be in really addressing these spheres with education as opposed to finger pointing. Excellent point. Um, Eric, I saw you unmuting there before. Do you want to, uh, did you want to jump in on this one a bit? Yeah, I did. I mean, I think everything that Chloe said here was bang on. Um, the biggest thing that we can do is really think about how we're using space in general. So, you know, when it comes to major transit station areas, 
you know, Hong Kong and J- Japan, they've really shown us a model where you actually get to pay for a lot of the infrastructure that you need by allowing all the housing and the real estate opportunity to come out of it. We are starting to see that more, but not really enough. And then, yes, she also spoke about this uh, idea about leveraging land that we own for community benefit and for nonprofit development. So, you know, we have only a limited amount of crown land left in the city. Most of the land in the city is private. So when it comes to using those lands, I think there could be a bit more of a stronger culture around leveraging those for deeply affordable and, you know, workforce affordable housing, uh, just like Chloe said. And I think what we'll, we'll need to even enable that is the next steps in going beyond what we've just done here with fourplexes today. You know, I think in a city like Toronto, asking for, you know, four stories and six units is not going too far or, you know, four stories and eight units in in a lot of places. I mean, I, I can't really see a great reason that basically anywhere South of Eglinton and, you know, East of High Park and, you know, West of Victoria Park shouldn't be six stories or, you know, at least four stories. There's no good reason for it, given its proximity to all these cultural areas, to jobs, to employment. It really is a a shame that we can't see a future in which a lot of our neighborhoods are are better in, in a lot of ways. And that we've zoned them so that the space that you're creating, you're actually enabled to use higher quality materials. Like that's what comes through standardization. So you know, really starting to think about how do we even get better infrastructure and more beauty and more retail and more small business opportunities. Like this is really what I hope to be with this change. You know, a straw that breaks camel's back and helping people think about how solving the housing crisis through policy reform is also about envisioning a future where quality of life is higher for everyone. So, you know, that's kind of what I want to tack on there. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think maybe worth, uh, we can jump back to um, the unit economics on like, especially on the CMHC side, because um, you're Odell, I'm, I'm curious, and, and I don't know, maybe this could just be one of those questions we don't know the answer to yet, because I have heard of like a lot of people doing sort of like units one, two, three, and four, and then adding, or tr- like hypothetically, right? Like nobody's actually done this, but talking about sort of this would be the strategy. What unit, Do units one, two, three, and four get away with no DCs and then add five later or whatever it is? But like to get to that five unit minimum, because by all technical standards, if you have five units on a contiguous or on, on one lot, then you should be entitled to CMHC uh, term debt. So that that's 40-year amortization, uh, interest rates and in sort of like right now and like kind of the low fours um, makes a deal cash flow exceptionally well. Like for the average person, it's, it, you know, it really does change the economics of a deal and it allows you, as Dan Moss mentioned, to, to scale because you could take equity out of the, the project number one and put it into project number two. Um, I guess the question is like, does that, what's the cost benefit on that? Because do we know if you go to the fifth unit, um, you lose that that kind of DC incentive that that you're mentioning there. You absolutely do. So you used to be able to um, avoid it by adding one at a time as you as you run, but now it's anything over four, save and except for that uh, laneway suite 
um, provision that allows the deferral, that deferral bylaw. Uh, otherwise, yes, as soon as you go over four uh, within the city of Toronto, it will trigger DCs back to the first one. And so, yes, you will not get uh, people pushing then for, for more than four units unless uh, we get up to 10 units from the province um, with a DC or with a uh, not a DC deferral, but a cancellation. And that that's really where your PTMSA, PMTSA, sorry, uh, giving me PTSD uh, is is so critical. Um, we have so much of that line one subway uh, run that is nestled and surrounded by single family dwellings. And that's the next chip that needs to fall with greater densities than this, uh, than these four units, if we're going to have any impactful numbers on this. It, 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 this is kind of reminiscent of uh, the work Jennifer Keysmat did around the avenues, like all of a sudden, oh, okay, all these avenues are opening up, you can do eight stories, all this mid-rise development's going to happen. But there's all these landowners on these major avenues that have great tenants that just they're not in the development game and they have no need to tear these things down or rip them apart or add to them. And they just kind of let them ride. And you're going to have the same thing with the majority of, uh, of single family homeowners. Like we're not showing up to everyone's houses with high hose tomorrow and start, start ripping them apart. This is going to be a slow patchwork uh, tapestry that's going to happen uh, around the city as, as people start to age out or age into that property and, and have kids that are, you know, um, wanting to live in the neighborhoods they grew up in, then there's, there's going to be a life change that's going to affect a housing change. It's not, there's, there's only so many investor types, builder types that are going to take these on in a, um, in kind of a spec nature. And so, uh, those, those high density transit areas, those main roads, those avenues, they all need to gross up uh, over and above what these are. And and uh, financing CMHC and financing is going to have to change if they, you know, if they want this to support this type of stuff. So if five units is the threshold, you know, maybe they have to start looking at, at four units. Yeah, just, it is uh, an interesting consideration. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Conrad. I was just going to follow up on what Uriel was just saying. Um, ULI did a report. Oh, here we go. Via rail. Thank you. Um, uh, ULI did a report which had a kind of laundry list of suggestions beyond just making these as of right. One of which was around DC charges for up to for buildings and up to 10 units. And it also included a whole bunch of other things to nerd out on around um, you know, electrical panel sizing, going the things that mandate you to go to 400 amp panels, um, issues, uh, a whole bunch of other issues that if anyone's kind of seriously want to nosedive into it, I think that's an extremely good starting point. Um, just wanted to kind of flag that because uh, it's, it's a really good document that they put together. Can I build on that? Uh, Daniel? Uh, of course, I yeah. So this is where the council and the mayor should have been working to address those policy gaps with the feds. And I have experience working with apprentices through George Brown. And it's like, yeah, if we want to even address the housing shortage, we have to talk about the labor shortage, the lack of standardization between building codes, training, et cetera, in order to deliver on these targets. So yeah, CMHC has some funding problems 
And it's up to us to really change the policy for them from the biggest city from the ground up. So it's like, yeah, I would really like to see more data being used because we have a lot of construction technology that we're not leveraging to our advantage. And this is where, again, City of Toronto needs to step up and be deploying these technologies on their job sites, on their contracts to make sure that we're getting better data to influence how CMHC is writing these policy eligibility docs. That's about it. Yeah, I, it, it is interesting from my perspective, like thinking about about CMHC and and uh, and you know what Conrad had mentioned as well. Like, I it wouldn't surprise me to see them adapt uh, with this and and Bill Twenty Three, you know, to try and get. I, I guess the challenge is that it does sort of create like it would really become a. I, th- I think they would just be so oversubscribed. Like, I think with fourplex, it's like it's a little bit less at risk of becoming oversubscribed because it is a bit of a big barrier to entry, like to qualify for a build of that size of that magnitude. Um, but like if they were to go to kind of bill 23, which would be sort of like your ADU plus a detached ADU um, or some of these other things, it's like that. I think we've seen what happens when, you know, I mean, at, at a municipal government level when, you know, you have too many applications and, and even CMHC, I think is seeing it happen. And I'm sure some of the developers in, in the, you know, in the audience could probably attest to this. Like, I think that we're, we're seeing, you know, how long it takes to get CMHC financing. Like for anyone who's done an MLI select application, you know, they're, they take a, a, an exceptionally long time to get to fund. Same thing um, on the takeout for the same loan type. Um, so that, so the, the term debt that is, um, so they're already sort of at like probably beyond capacity. I mean, even seeing the landlord and tenant board sort of in a position of being oversubscribed, like, I guess, there are like some probably fundamental changes that would need to happen almost in like a bureaucratic perspective at, at all levels of government and at the CMHC to be able to accommodate for the the magnitude that would happen as a result of that. Or I think what you're describing is, you know, like on-site technology, but also I think systematization, like to streamline this because like that, the, the, just the sheer magnitude quantity of applications that could happen as a result of this. And, and that would happen, especially if it, if the floodgates were open on the financing side and anybody could go and get, you know, a 95 or 100% loan to value construction mortgage to build this type of thing, I just think it would be impossible to satiate the demand that would happen as a result of that. I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't think, I think if you made MLI select work, work for projects of this size, like you would instantly backlog MLI select for a decade, probably. That would be my guess. For sure. And this is where we have, a, a freshly unemployed tech sector. We could be putting them to work, creating better user-friendly tools, analyzing and warehousing this data in a way that's actually user-friendly instead of bureaucrat-friendly. Because truth is, the data is out there. Is it actually being used in the favor of the people that it's designed for? No, it's not. Because we have a bunch of consultations, but these consultations don't design new products. So yeah. It does seem overwhelming in the beginning, but if you get the right talent on it, we could be building better tools. So yeah, I'm leaning on the I'm leaning on us to lean on the government to be like, what are you doing with all this data? Why isn't it creating better outcomes? Why isn't it like expediting permits? Because how long does it really take for all this data to be processed now? We have the tools. It's just a matter of using them. 
Yeah, I tried to pull on uh, Dan Moss here, who's in the audience, because he, I think he would be an exceptional candidate to maybe chat with you about sort of how to leverage technology to to, to help a lot of these things. Like he, I think he's involved with the PropTech Collective, who has an event next week um, that uh, that's going to be discussing like, you know, probably more PropTech stuff, but things sort of like along these lines. So I, I would imagine that would be a, a great conversation for you to, to compound on. I've I've tried to see if he can come up as a speaker, but. Uh, but uh, he dropped off a while ago. But I, I would agree with you. I think like figuring out a way, it, it, like the whole Canadian real estate industry is so archaic in nature, you know, when it comes to us saying why we can't have, uh, you know, proper AML working or CRA tie-ins with the big six banks and all of these things. Like it starts with, with that and goes all the way to, you know, this planning and and systematization and whatever it is like i think we're due for a complete overhaul and it seems like it's starting to happen from a policy perspective a legislative perspective but just like how quick how, how quickly can we um can we move in the right direction dan do you have any um any any ideas of, of individuals who who are doing anything in that space any like companies or or individuals that are sort of helping the systematization around what whatever it is to, to help get supply on faster. Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah. Hi everyone for, sorry. I realized I jumped in a little quickly uh, earlier. My name's Dan. Um, I'm passionate about missing middle. I'm the co-founder of patter. We're trying to make it easier for independent landlords to uh, manage and grow their real estate portfolio and make renting better for their tenants in the process. So in terms of the technology on the construction side, the biggest kind of homegrown Toronto-based company that I would reference is definitely Ratio City. Um, they've done a really good job of taking all of the data for zoning um, and applications for, for developers um, and kind of democratizing that data and making it accessible online and, uh, and really well uh, built out. I'm not... I'm probably not the best position to speak to it from a supply standpoint, i.e., you know, from the um, architect or the uh, the actual building standpoint. But uh, yeah, that that would be the one that really stands out. Ratio City, they've done a, a really impressive job. And if uh, if anyone else on the call has experience with them, uh, Eurodale, I don't know if you've uh, come across them before, but. Uh, yeah, I, I'd love to hear uh, other people's thoughts on the space as well. Thanks, Dan. Um, Sheena, I saw your hand go up there. Did you? Uh, oh, oh, you're Odell. If you want to jump in, and then we can go to Sheena. Sorry. No problem at all. All I was going to say was, no, we have not heard of it. So we'll we'll take a look sure. at it. Thank you, um, Sheena. I just wanted to to say that um, when you say it would be oversubscribed. Um, as if that is a bad thing. Um, I think that it's underfunded, greatly underfunded. And I think the way that we're managing construction in Ontario, the, it's the, like Premier Ford is putting money into large projects, hospitals, not funding running the hospitals, but building the hospitals, building highways. That's not exactly what we need right now. We need housing. So, Oversubscribed is not a bad problem. It's a good problem. Put more money into it. 
and look at look at where we're putting our resources and what we're paying for. We need to start putting our resources into things that people need now and balancing that better. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when you started off by saying, um, and so, sorry, Chloe, I see you're unmuted there. I'd love to, uh, to hear what your, your take on this in a second. Like the underfunded versus oversubscribed. I would agree. I mean, and I think that that's kind of like, seems to be the story with a lot of the, the things related to housing, you know, landlord and tenant board being another good example, like, uh, you know, getting the staffing to be able to deal with the, the backlogs, uh, CMHC being another example, but then also planning, et cetera. Um, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm not exceptionally good at, at politics or understanding it all. So uh, other than the, the part of maybe just trying to pay my taxes and make sure it gets spent in the right place or hope it gets spent in the right place. Um, but it does seem like a really complex problem to solve. So I, um, but I guess my fear is like, can you control like, or does controlling the, uh, the demand curve, like getting less and less people to try and apply um, or maybe expediting the, the delivery of those applications? Like, can that actually be solved or is it just like we have to get more people to, to process? Like, I mean, especially with like the advent of like AI and stuff like, is there room for those things to actually have an impact? Um, anyway, uh, Chloe, I saw you unmute there. Did you want to jump in? Hi, Eric. Eric, sorry, I, I I don't know if my audio is working. I'm just I'm stepping. Yeah, the, it, it, so it's switching. working. We can I hear also you. saw Chloe just uh, unmuted again, so I okay. I, I let her go in first. Yeah, okay, and then we can get you in after there. Maybe maybe it was a ghost. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I think all I want to say on like the question of well, can digital investment help us expedite the processes here. Um, you know, I, I generally work for in the financial services industry and you know, there's a lot of systems involved and things are very complex. And oftentimes when you have an issue like this is, the question is actually usually yes, right? Like if you want to process more applications because you have an application problem in the short term, there's nothing you can really do other than throw people at it because you know, when you're creating a new tool or creating new software, especially for industries that are heavily regulated, it just takes time. The rules can be complex and you have to consolidate potentially across multiple different systems in order to make that new interface work. So you have to actually make the investment so that you can lower your cost per application or your time spent per application in the future. Um, so if we have this issue around applications, can technology likely help future uh, planners, et cetera, move faster on them? Of course it can. But if we want to solve the problem in the short term, we're going to have to assume it's with existing tools. And so maybe what we do is we employ more people in the short term, and then we deploy new technology over the long term, and the people that we have are able to process more applications. Yeah, that's just my my two cents. It's like we kind yeah, of appreciate. Yeah, uh, Chloe, did you want to hop in here? I, I have some thoughts on that, but I, I'll get to them after. Um, uh -huh. Did you want to jump in, Chloe? I don't know if you're. Um, 
the mics. My mic's not working. If yours isn't, can you, Eric? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Yeah, you're fine, okay. Chloe. Um, you might need to leave and come back on because you you keep yeah, getting maybe. unmuted. So you might want to leave and come back on. Yeah, um, I guess I can chat uh, quickly on that. Like my on on what Eric was mentioning as well. Um, if if Chloe has to, to uh, exit and rejoin, um, my thought on on like on I think if things are oversubscribed, like you know, it comes down to a, a lot of like business people deal with this problem too um you know i mean for me like as an example like my my younger brother's a landscape architect and he's like oh i have too many clients and i'm like okay well that means you have to raise your prices until you you say you have too, too few clients and i think like you know this if the cmhc stuff is get or does get to a point where it's oversubscribed and it's becoming problematic like maybe it's at that point or, or, you know, like there's such an application backlog because they dropped it to four units, hypothetically, as an example. Maybe you have to institute a, a small application fee for units of that size because they're just like, you know, the, the, there's no economies of scale. It's not helping their mandate of delivering a massive amount of housing. And, uh, and so that, you, you know, as, as an applicant, you kind of have to pay for the manpower to, to put, to move that thing along. And I think if you could do like, you see this happening with like Tesla, the way that they rate, you know, they, they uh, fundraise for a new vehicle or, you know, some sort of, I'm uh, like, I think it's kind of like the, one of the oldest tricks in the book with this, with this crowdsourcing stuff. And, and I'm just surprised that from like the policy environment hasn't really got there. Like the bureaucratic environment hasn't really got there where it's like, I, I think on a space like a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was in a thread here, people were like, if I could pay a line skipping fee, like for planning applications, it, you know, the, the, the municipality could just make an absolute killing. And, and I think that if you like, it might actually just be the point in time where, and I don't know if that, that ruins the competition of a, of a market, but it might actually be a point in time where it's like, it's like, okay, well, we've created a problem where there's too many people or too much demand. Maybe we just charge those people, you know, so that it becomes our, worth our while to, to respond to that, that demand. Um, Anyway, yeah, that's it, it is a bit yeah. of an enigma, right? Because nominally, the application fees um, are actually covering the cost of the planning. So the city has kind of said with its development fees um, for the application fee that they're already doing that. So uh, it's kind of one of those like interesting situations in which it's it's kind of bizarre that yeah. we have a dearth of planners at the city, even though technically speaking, the applications themselves. Um, are paying for the use of planning time. Yeah, um, I guess the like... question becomes. Yeah, I guess yeah. the question. Sorry, yeah. I guess the question becomes like, can we afford to pay them more as a result of that? But and, and I was saying almost more on the financing side. It's like, well, if CMHC ends up with that problem, like I would agree. Like, I, and you know, mechanically, like understand how that's supposed to work on the. I guess on the municipal planning side, but it's almost like if other if we end up with other blockages or bottlenecks in the supply chain can you solve them with and again like I, i'm you know, the last person I, to say I think like add fees to something there's really innovative solutions that are possible here i mean we have an extremely consolidated banking sector so allowing the the banks themselves to qualify cmhc loans to builders against cmhc rules is entirely feasible and you can open up a pipeline um you know by leveraging existing banks and all the capacity that they have to loan. 
So if CMHC wanted to, they could find ways to do it. Yeah, that's fair. I would agree with that. I think they have enough resources to do that. Um, Sheena, did you want to hop on here? I see your hand up. Yeah, I do. Um, CMHC already does that. They they contract out to underwriters and they already charge an application fee. But I think that this the idea is going in the wrong direction. We have a huge supply problem right now. We want to eliminate the barriers so that we can bring the cost of housing down closer to the cost of building it. And, and we need to open up areas for, for the builders with a lower cost product like, like low rise wood frame. It, I'm not saying that, that the fourplexes are gonna solve the problem, but I am saying that as a construction type, it's a cheaper construction type and we should let them compete with the big boys. We really like the idea of throttling supply. That's what we have right now. That's the problem. We need to bring it down. And I've seen some applications um, of AI that are really interesting ways that could um, certainly speed application if that is an issue. And, and I, and I don't think it's something that will take six months. I, I, I think I was I actually t today, I, was, I, I started to understand that some of these really, really big costs of building software systems, they are going to fall and we are going to get a better product. So I think like all of these issues are red herrings in terms of like, can we possibly, why would we possibly uh, want to inhibit supply? We don't take out all the barriers and it, and see if we can get it to a point where people can compete on the price of construction. Of course, we can't go below that. Of course, we want people to be able to make money. But all of this stuff, I think, is solvable. We need to move the supply much more quickly. Thank you. Yeah, I, I guess the challenge there is, like, doesn't that just sort of move the bottleneck to the construction phase and then you get an oversubscription in the construction space and then nobody is competing on on con like on construction costs because there's so many like we've put had so many applications get through the planning side that now like you know now you have, you have a, sh a shortage a supply shortage of, of trades to build them fast enough right like i guess that's the next well this problem. is what i'm saying like we're building the wrong thing we have the province the province um uh putting money into really really large projects i mean i remember years ago when the airport was trying to finish and it was behind we lost all the drywallers and all the condos in downtown toronto it was ridiculous i mean we do have a set number of trades but we are building doug ford is building stuff that we don't need and that is going to suck people out of the trades i mean we have to we need housing we need it now we need to remove the barriers and we don't need we don't need all of this other competition that are that are making one sector of the construction industry quite wealthy. But we need to to give the people in the housing sector more of a chance. Thanks. Right. Okay. Um, Dan, I saw your hand go up there. Uh, I think on AI. Um, Eric, I think on uh, on me moving me chatting about moving the the bottleneck to the trade. So we'll go Dan, Eric, and then get over to Conrad. My service might be a little bit bad for the next like couple of minutes anyway. So if you guys want to ramble on, feel free. I'll do what I can. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very good point from Sheena. Dan, are you speaking? I don't, I can't I am. You. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can we hear, can hear you. you. Okay. 
Um, can you guys hear Dan Moss? Or? Yeah, uh, Daniel. We can't okay, I'm, I'm the problem. I'll figure it out in a minute. <laughs> um, so it's a good point from Sheena. Software is getting easier to build, especially with, with artificial intelligence and, you know, uh, different uh, AI assistants helping. Our, our team is already starting to implement them. The biggest problem that we find is when you're building software, effectively you're building frameworks and you want frameworks to be scalable. And to make those frameworks scalable, you need to eliminate variants, variables. Uh, you want everything to be consistent. And I guess the big question, and this is where the ignorant real estate side uh, will come out, there seems to be a lot of variability in these applications and that's why it's hard to build automated software to process them. And then Eurodale, I, I'm really interested to hear more about what you're talking about earlier. I've seen a lot of consistent plans on the multiplexes that are built from scratch, but in terms of the conversions, like every house is, they're only so similar, right? Every house is unique. So it, I'd love to hear more about how those conversion processes can be streamlined by taking out some of the variability. So I guess that's my, my thought on the, the software side. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear more on the construction side, how you eliminate those variables. Um, you're uh, I think you should go, uh, Eurodale, answer that question. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when you're working on um, an addition renovation project, you you won't eliminate the variables you you'll have a sense of what you're going to find you uh definitely even if you've renovated houses on the same street that were built at the same time by the same builder um when you open things up there's always going to be a variable and and most of the variables are are caused by our forefathers who did funky renovations back in the day and the stuff we've seen over the years would, would blow your mind. And so from one house to another, you're going to come up against all kinds of variables. So the only way to limit those is by completely raising that structure and starting from scratch. And then your only variable at that point is the soil condition that you're building on. And, and that includes the water table. Um, so, you know, aside from that, you'll find variables within existing structures. But knowing the, the, the basic original footprint, you can standardize a design and you can standardize a plan with best intentions. You have to plan for a hiccup that's going to be that you're going to face along the way. That's that's just the joy and bane of, of renovations. Thanks, uh, Uradel. I think um, Conrad was next or Eric. I think it might have been Conrad and then Eric. Uh, Eric, you can go for it if you want. You were ahead of me. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of dropped my thing. I just wanted to comment on some of the, the questions around, like, labor and supply um, becoming the issue. I mean, I, I think if we could move from the policy being the bottleneck to truly labor being the bottleneck, I think that would be a very good outcome because businesses and supply chains can react to that, not in the short term, but in the long term. And I think one of the other things that's important to mention here is that the way that we use labor in this province in a housing crisis is actually quite insane. So, you know, right now, a lot of the labor that we have is dedicated towards building two types of housing, 
very high density housing um, with large projects that take a long time. They're very engineering. Their engineering complexity is very high, as are the, the loan timelines for the construction loans. So you have a lot of people building, um, required to build basically a square foot of housing. You build a lot of units, but each square foot takes a lot of effort. And then we're building a lot of uh, single family housing, which on a per square foot basis is quite cheap, but doesn't produce a lot of units. And so we're using all this labor to produce housing that isn't efficient at creating units in space um, at the same time for the labor that exists. So when we think about some of these reforms, particularly around multiplexes, but I think going beyond it to like the idea of small apartments, that's where you're really going to hit that optimization of labor utilization in producing pre-patterned apartments, like, you know, make lots of cakes, dress them with different buttercream. They're going to look pretty and different, but the same, it's still cake. That's really where we need to get to with housing if we want the costs to truly fall. So, you know, whenever I hear this comment about labor utilization, labor shortages, I'm like, we have a labor utilization problem more than we have a labor shortage problem. Yeah, it is a, it's an excellent point. I think um, you see like the way that they're doing large neighborhoods, um, like ground on ground-based housing, they do use, I guess, like almost, let's call it manufacturing techniques like you're describing. So I guess if we could get to the point, and, I, and nobody was really like um, afraid of that, like uh, homogeneity in design uh, in, in the low-rise space, so I don't know why we would be in, in sort of like the mid-rise or missing middle space. Yeah, I mean, cookie cutter was great at producing lots of cookies, right? And so now we need to produce a lot of cookies that are multifamily housing. Sounds delicious. Um, Chloe, and uh, actually, sorry, I think we had Conrad. My apologies. I, 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 uh, yeah, I'm I, just going to... Yeah, go ahead, Conrad. All good, all good. Um, no, I... Uh, I mean, there's there's always a dozen reasons why I go to Montreal, but one of the reasons, of course, is that it is a city of triplexes and that they do do them cookie cutter, but there's such an efficiency to the way that they're built because there is no side yard setback. Um, they share party walls. You're only decorating one front elevation. Um, the building code is unique in Montreal because it's a chartered city. They actually have a building code that exempts them from the national and provincial building code. And so you have different types of exiting and, and um, sort of third story additions that are that are totally special to Montreal. And I've, I've been asking myself, why, why does Montreal have these conditions today? And of course, it's because it's been there forever. There's a there's a history of it. Uh, and in other parts of Canada, there isn't a history of this kind of missing middle housing. Um, but one of the things I wanted to raise to this audience, just given uh, the kind of real estate um, focus of it um is uh what is the tenure what do we think the tenure of these um these fourplexes multiplex Is that his audio or mine? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, he's breaking up for he's got, me. He's got the via rail. I think I know the question. It's like, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming he was going between rental or ownership. So I think we got you back, Conrad. Yeah. Cut out there. I was yeah. just going to add that to the level that could be done um, for purpose. 
Michaels and the, the Diamond Brothers at Well-Grounded Real Estate have written about this quite a bit. Um, uh, HST deferral for purpose-built rental, given that you're not looking uh, increase sounds like a for rental would be huge. There's a condo registration uh, process would allow you know a four-unit plex not have to go through the same conversation that much larger projects do. Yeah, and I, I'm not super familiar with like somebody was kind of explaining why it's I, like is it just an economies of scale thing that makes that preventative? Because I think it's like more common in in like in BC, right, where you see like the stratification of these sort of smaller buildings. Is there like a specific reason why it doesn't make a ton of sense? I know we have Al here from Round Square. Maybe I can get him up to to chime in on because he's kind of co got a good coast to coast perspective. Um, Chloe, I, I know you unmuted there. Had your hand up. Um, did you want to jump in quickly on one of these topics? No, I'm actually liking this discussion. Go ahead. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, my thought is like I think it would be interesting. A lot of people have talked about like sort of missing middle when it comes to like um the the tenure structure about like almost like a resurrection of co-op right like it's like yeah okay well if if the if we can't properly stratify our condo these smaller concepts can we do them can we kind of bring back that co-op ownership so on, on con, I, I know eric's I just unmuted but uh the one thing with co-op i've been told repeatedly is good luck trying to get financing from any lender in ontario uh with a co-op structure for sure yeah yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot for co-ops. It's just very hard to get that model working. But if I'm going to indulge myself. One of the concepts in housing that I love and I would love to live in, and it's still basically legal because of policy, um, is this idea, I think, out of, uh, I think it's either Germany or Austria, of like Baugruppen, um, which is essentially, if you take the multiplex or, you know, the multifamily concept, but you have a lot more free open shared spaces and these buildings are typically occupied by, you know, friends and family. I believe there was an example out in BC where, you know, a kind of a, a group of uh, friends came together and built like a 10 unit building. Um, I think it would be brilliant to allow people to enter agreements and relationships to build housing like this. Um, I feel like for a lot of young people, a lot of, you know, a lot of people, even among my friends would love to live in like a multiplex where we had our own spaces and then had some very cool shared spaces. But within what's allowed and the land that's available, it would be literally impossible to do something like that. And so, you know, I just wanted to throw that in as something that is kind of, of crazy, right? Because it really shouldn't be a prohibited type of housing. Um, I'll stop talking because I see Chloe wants to go. <laughs> so you're talking multi-use development, and this is where we just have to look to what the Japanese are doing. And it's like, why can't a hospital like lease a floor? Why can't a micro factory lease a floor in a building and above it is residential? We can have these forms of mixed-use housing, and they can be affordable if a land trust was set up for tenants associations, seniors. There's a variety of ways that 
residents could be offered shares of future development, but it's about facilitating that relationship so that we're actually using our savings better. Because yeah, throughout the pandemic, I was able to save this money, but what am I actually putting it towards if I as an individual cannot buy a home, but together with my tenants association, we can all put together on a share of a piece of land, come together with a community organization like YMCA or the University Health Network and develop a multi-use building. And this is where the government should be working a little bit harder to make our tax dollars work a little harder as well, because I really just feel the common thread of this conversation is that we need more mixed models for delivering a standardized form of shelter so that, yeah, at least the building is up and then we can get people living, paying taxes so that we can make better developments in the future. So yeah, it's going to take a stepped approach, but it is possible. It's really just about how far are we willing to push for diversity of developments, multi-use, mixed, whatever language we use to describe them, but our buildings have to work harder. And there is funding available through a variety of federal grants, but we need to start mixing them. We can't just look at CMHC, but there's ICED, there's the Environment and Climate Change Department that's offering climate-friendly buildings grants. So we really just need to mix and match our approach to how we're delivering housing and look at it not just from the bare bones, but now it's like the HVAC systems. How can we integrate biophilic design so that you know, there's an opportunity for people to have green space on their building. So it's really just the thing limiting us is the imagination of government. So we really just need to push them a little harder to really work. And as Eric said, like utilize the workforce. It has so many opportunities. It's just not working hard enough. And that really comes down to like, are we really forcing our government to see our vision or are we just hoping that they get it? And that goes back to, you know, today's multiplex victory because it, in my mind, it's taken longer for inclusionary zoning to happen than Camilla to like get to be a queen. That's unacceptable. We really need to push further to just get things done versus waiting for our representatives. So that's just my last thoughts. And I'm just listening now. Thanks, Chloe. Yeah, I have a, a couple of interesting thoughts on on sort of like the tenure structure as well. Um, uh, but I'll let Sheena go here, and then I'll, maybe I'll do that, and then we can kind of start making an effort to wrap it up here to be um, mindful of everyone's time. Um, go ahead, Sheena. I just wanted to say that um, there are definitely co-housing models. Um, I was working for a very small amount of time with Shelley Raymond, who who has a background in real estate, and she sweat blood to get to try to get um, like six units with common spaces. And really what she managed to do is pull together a bunch of templates where it could be rental units as an investment property, or the people moving in could be putting equity into it. But in all cases, she was getting to a place where, you know, she was specifically looking at seniors on fixed incomes and their, um, their alternatives, which are Chartwell, like $6,000 a month, which a lot of people can't afford, and was able to bring it in at more like $2,000 a month, you know, with a shared one meal a day um, cook kind of thing. So the, and she, she put together all the legal templates. And the thing is that the, the first people through uh, 
pay enormously and trying to set things up. But the bureaucracy threw so many things at her. The zoning people threw so many throw so many curveballs at her. But if we can start to get templates for a variety of different ownership structures that would serve people at different times of their lives, like that would be a very useful thing to do. Thank you. Sheena, sorry, I see you're um, muted again there. I, I couldn't hear you at all, so I, I just didn't want to ruin the user experience for everybody. But um, I, I, I apologize if um, if I if I go over kind of anything that you've said there. But in regards to, like, what Chloe was mentioning about mixed use um, and then also, you know, what Eric was mentioning about that housing concept um, in Europe, um, I've seen this happen. Like, I think the market is actually starting to respond. I work a lot in the resale space, um, selling multiplexes. Like most of my clients would be investors who have multiplexes, a lot of legal non-conforming stuff, a lot of completely illegal stuff, um, a lot of legal stuff. And um, I've noticed like, well, today there, like there did seem to be an uptick in demand, which was just interesting in itself. But I've noticed a lot of individuals um, that were buying or sorry, groups of, of families buying we're looking to purchase like investors weren't exceptionally active over the last let's say six months to uh, maybe 12 months um first the market was too high risk and then it was too the risk was realized and it was too uh, i guess the credit kind of constricted the market a bit but what i found fascinating was the the most uh, active purchasers for a, um, a two unit or four unit or whatever building were groups of families looking to buy it themselves and i think when you talk about like um, the co-op and co-op being challenging. Um, I would agree, like from a financing perspective, it is hard. It's going to be impossible to get a finance. If you're talking like a large scale construction um, of a huge, you know, like the, the traditional co-op, I guess that we know. But if you think about like a, a fourplex, it, it's, it's really not like, I think mo if you get four families together, you know, you need, from a contractual perspective of things would need to look really, really airtight. But if you get four families together, you now have four borrowers, you know, that's four net worth Four like you have a stronger covenant. Um, you have stronger income combined income. And I don't, I actually don't think it would be hard in a small scale to find lenders to, to fund a deal like that. If somebody just wanted to build a four unit building for them and three other families to live in. Um, and so I think like, it's just figuring out how to rethink like is that legal is that you know is that legal within within zoning or planning or whatever it is um is it le like and can we build owner proper ownership structures that kind of like they don't have to be necessarily like co-op tenure they could just be four groups of people co-owning a house that have a strict set of agreements it doesn't even have to have like sort of like the the living spaces like you were the shared living spaces like you were describing eric although like it certainly could, and it certainly could be even co-living, which um, Al suggested in the comments uh, of the space. But to me, like, it is executable for for four for eight potential borrowers, the four couples, eight borrowers to go and like right now. Even I have a, I have a mixed use building. This one's really fascinating on the context of what Chloe was mentioning. Mixed use building, a group of professionals in. Um, I'm trying not to give away too much information about the deal, but. Um, group of young professionals who own a business together, the bu the building has multiple residential units in it. They're going to live 
two families are going to live in two of the units and operate their business within the um, commercial space of the, of the building. I mean, to me, it's like, it's fascinating that the market is already demanding the things that we're theorizing right now and communicating it just through like through the free market. And, and I think that it's responding accordingly to the lack of options by just figuring out a way to do it on their own. Um, anyway, Justice, do you want to hop in? Yeah, just um, along your thought that you just made there. Like, I also find, like, with, like, a lot of, like, immigrant families that move over here, like, for them, they're already, like, buying a house between, like, two or three or four families, right? So I almost feel like this idea of a multiplex, if we could make it easier, gives them that separation of space. Because I think, you know, people would like that separation of space. So I actually think that we have to make it more possible to have this co-housing kind of model or however you want to like name it like co-ownership because I think it's actually pretty beneficial considering they're like people are already doing it basically but they're just in a single family house and I mean I'm South Asian and from a cultural perspective people do need their space but you know a lot of them live together because you know their parents take care of their kids um, or maybe like there's an aunt that takes care of the kids so they all kind of have to be close together and they're already doing this so we should make it possible. Um, for people that want to do this. I think like in a global context, like we're almost just like a little bit behind the curve here. Like it seems like everywhere else in the world is kind of doing multi-generational or like forms of co-living. Like, do we really need to wrap like even policy around it? Like I would agree separation of spaces is like helpful, but I mean, we're also just like, I think maybe earlier in our life cycle as like a nation and, and, capital like in a capitalist economy like we're kind of getting to that like late stage where and and we have a, a, a you know i think 10 million people approaching the age of 70 or something where like we are going to need a lot of them to to be living you know help for young families who are starting or they're going to need we're going to need to take care of our parents within our homes like uh, those are all things that are considered like beautiful parts of other cultures right like letting seniors age in place having them close to the like having the village <laughs> um around to to help raise the child like all of these things like i, I do think it is interesting because there's like a cultural con context around it as well go ahead Eric. Well, I, mean, I, I think what we're sort of coming up to is getting a little bit pr less precious about planning determining how everyone needs to live right like what i really think about allowing more flexibility is enabling people to live their own best lives and however they define what is best for them. And so we have over prescribed this idea of like the single family home with a nuclear family that I think is actually really destructive to our culture over the long term. I think people are starting sort of starting to wake up to this fact, right? Like there's nothing wrong with wanting that model, but it's not the only way that people want to live and experience relationships with how they're living with other people. So we, we kind of have to go to planning and say like, look, Stop over planning everything and let people decide more how they want to live. And your job is to make sure that it's feasible for people to live that way if it's not hurting anyone, right? So to some extent, like, it's not capitalism that's forced us into the state. It's, I don't know, it's not even, it's not socialism. It's like a boomerism. Um, and, and we're just trying to dig ourselves out. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, I guess the, like the kind of like the old way wasn't working, right? So um, it, this is a, like a really interesting conversation. I, mean, I feel like I've been really, uh, again, I want to be mindful of everybody's time. I feel like I've been really happy with with the dialogue. Um, and I know like um, 
I think feel like we could continue this one a lot, um, especially I think leading up to the election. So I'd love to have uh, any of the voices back to kind of like continue the discussion anytime between now and, and the election, you know, kind of just continue tabling thoughts and talking about, it, especially like with, with the missing middle thing. I think next week, I think uh, that's when um, Dan Moss's uh, prop tech collective thing is actually happening. So I might actually just try and do that panel from like, or on spaces. I think Jeremiah did that once and it worked out pretty nicely. So I might try and do something on, on prop tech um, next week. Um, if that's cool with everybody. Um, otherwise, is there anything that, uh, that we didn't touch on that, that uh, really needs to be touched on before I wrap up here? Or are we we're maybe good to go enjoy the beautiful weather for the next uh, couple of days and hopefully see the Leafs win it uh, in however many games now in seven. We're good. Okay. Um, thank you all for your uh, contribution. I really appreciate it. I um, appreciate you all staying for this extra long uh, space. And uh, I'm, I'm really just looking forward to continuing this conversation. Um, I think uh, for anybody who wants to see or hear more of this kind of stuff between now and the election, um, missingmiddleconference.com, uh, I think is what, or I'm sorry, missingmiddlesummit.com. And there's links all over Twitter, but just look it up. It's, uh, it's going to be cool. Um, that's it for now. That's all I have for now. So have, everybody have a wonderful weekend. And thanks again. I really appreciate you all.